Welcome to this clinical law briefing. My name is Robert Wheeler. I work in Southampton as a children's surgeon and clinical lawyer and hope this podcast concerning a legal aspect of clinical life will interest you. This is a briefing about palliation. In August 2019, a hospital sought a court declaration that RR, a 20-year-old man, lacked the capacity to make decisions about the palliative care that he was being offered and to approve the proposed plan. At the time of the hearing, R was at home very poorly with his father. He suffered severe aplastic anemia for five years. He had undergone stem cell transplant earlier in the summer of 2019, which had been unsuccessful partly because he had not consistently followed the recommended treatment plan. Since then, R had endured neutropenic sepsis requiring intensive care. He had only recently been discharged. He was expected to die within days or weeks. His early life had been characterised by significant harm inflicted by both birth and then foster families. This then had perhaps been exacerbated by the regular use of non-prescription drugs. His eventual diagnosis included a complex mixture of emotional dysregulation and psychological conditions loosely formulated as Asperger's syndrome, autism and personality disorder. But he had eventually been successfully adopted and was greatly attached and felt indebted to his adoptive father. Both R and his father had expressed the wish for a second transplant although R, reflecting on a 1% chance of success of a second transplant with haploidentical donor, subsequently said he could not cope with a further period of inpatient treatment. R's capacity had been presumed until very recently, perhaps only questioned following the failure of his transplant a few weeks before the hearing. The judge relied on an expert in psychiatry, to explain how R's mental illness might impair his capacity to make decisions about treatment, particularly in weighing relevant information in the balance and then communicating his decisions. His inability to manage distressing emotions and his pattern of maladaptive coping strategies was likely to make him unable to reflect on the aspects of his treatment that caused him particular distress, leading him to avoiding not dealing with them. As a consequence, it was very unlikely that R would be able to base decisions on relevant information disclosed to him. For these and other reasons, R was found to lack capacity to make decisions about whether to have a second transplant. Since he lacked capacity, it fell to the court to determine whether a second transplant would be in his best interests. Plainly, if it was not, then it would be unlawful to proceed with an intention to cure him. The court was told that there was no real prospect of a second transplant for a number of reasons, not least the specific risks of a haploidentical donor, including discomfort and risks caused by cytokine release syndrome, the high risk of graft failure, and the morbidities of graft versus host disease. R had said many times he would not be able to tolerate a regime of four weeks isolation together with the preparatory chemotherapy. To this was added the reality that he would be a non-cooperative patient, running the associated risks of death and toxicity from transplantation, 
in addition to those of aplastic anemia. Representing the incapacitated R, the official solicitor, after careful consideration, concluded that the magnetic factors point to allowing R as good a quality of time with his family and friends as possible. For these reasons, the court concluded that a second transplant would not be in his interests. He died 48 hours after the judgment. I hope this was useful, but if you would prefer to read rather than to listen to me, by all means look at the Clinical Law website on the UHS webpage, or type Clinical Law into a search engine.